You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri. This is Zeba Hassan. I am recording in bed my my pseudo bed this week um, and probably next week too because I think we have Uzma's like a slave driver girls and ladies and gentlemen she's like I don't care if you just got out of surgery we have work to do don't be a cream puff and in in changing the world so get up and put a face on and let's get to it <laughs> no time for lady problems no girl <laughs> I, in my defense. <clears throat> Like I just realized too, the calendar issue and I don't, I don't yes. block off the calendar. I block off the calendar and I thought today was September 30th. It's actually October 1st. Guys. Already crazy. Who the heck knew? So I normally block off the calendar. So it's not Osmo's fault. I am just joking, but you probably are hearing a little bit in my voice because my vocal cords are irritated. Um, and this is how my week has gone. I have decided to take care of some lady issues um, that have been plaguing me for over a year. Um, it's the epitome of self-care for mothers as, you know, if something was wrong with your kids, you'd get it done right away. You'd be on top of it. But when you're a mom, you deal with it, you deal with it, you deal with it until you're realizing I'm literally climbing a mountain with like a 30 pound weight on the back of my back and I cannot do it anymore. So the first couple of days were rough, but you know, my husband, he set up a little office space for me in our nest. We call it our nest, which is in our little sitting room in our bedroom, which actually is a default sleeping room for any of my kids, including my 18 year old, <laughs> who sometimes will come and sleep in here when they need some extra um, care. Because um, my number one rule is don't wake mama up, but you're always allowed to come in our room and feel closeness to us. So we call it the nest. Um, so I'm the nest is mine. I have claimed it for this week as I recover. But, you know, this is something for all the people that have um, sent us messages. And I think poor Uzma was being harassed and all that. Like, I am fine. I'm on the road to recovery. But it definitely puts things into perspective. I saw a quote the other day that said, you know, moms would die for their kids. But would you actually live for them? And this is when I realized I have to live for my kids. And I have to live my best life for them because yes, I step in front of a car. I'd step in front of a bullet. I'd step in front of a train, but to take care of your basic health needs, I realized I wasn't doing that. And so now today, October 1st marks that journey so that I can live for my children, which is what we're doing for all of the people here. And we, I want you guys to do that as well. So enough about me, Uzma. Please tell me what you've been doing other than sending me amazing edible arrangements that you can't eat, <laughs> that I can't eat, but my children are loving Auntie Osma right now. <laughs> I'm sending you a virtual hug because that is so profound. What you just reminded all of us to do is to not just die for them, but to live for them. And some of us do say that we are living for them, you know, chauffeuring, cooking, troubleshooting, doing all of that stuff. But if we're not healthy, we have no cup to empty into theirs. So please fill your cups. Everybody who has been putting off those well woman exams, do it. be a woman and go get that pap. Go get your mammograms. Go do what you're supposed to do so you can live for your children. Um, this week for me has been a lot of fun. And no, I haven't been harassed. Um, I think the trolls that wanted to be on our accounts have all gone away which is fabulous. And the ones that are left are very quiet. So it's awesome. Uh, we just wrapped up our Queer Muslim Month and we um, this week finished up all of those recordings and it was so much fun. Um, that's really all I was doing. The one thing I do want to say to everybody and it's, you know, yeah, we're affiliates of Target. I think you'll see on our website. Maybe you'll see on our website. I don't know. Or at some point we were Target affiliates. I want to say that I have been living off of instant coffee for the last six weeks because my iced coffee was sold out at the grocery store and it's not coming in stock anytime soon. But remember, 
We can also drive up to target, ladies. So don't forget your try, uh, target drive up option on the little target app. And this is a whole plug to do it because in two hours you can have your iced coffee. And that's where I have been getting my stash. That, don't judge me, was the highlight of my week. And I, I'm not apologizing for that. The highlight of my week was passing gas. So you already beat me. <laughs> yeah, I'm I think not even going to lie. Gas. <laughs> yeah. The highlight of my week was like, did I get to pass that gas? You know, everybody knows what that is. So your instant coffee, I am living vicariously through you. I love it. Yeah. And I can't wait till you can have iced coffee again. So you ready for our soapbox? Take it away, Osma. Yeah. So today's soapbox is quote unquote a fun one because I always have apparently, you know, Debbie Downer stuff to report. But this one is about <clears throat> Britney Spears finally um, at 39 years old being able to be in charge of, oh my God, her own money uh, and her own life. So uh, while we all have concerns about mental health, because of course the first thing she does after getting her freedom is posting nude pictures of herself, but you know, We've been talking about body autonomy. We've been talking about what you get to do with yourself for a very long time on this podcast, all the way from abortion to, you know, our queer Muslim month, you do you boo, you know? So that's fine. We're not going to make any kind of value judgments on nude pictures, but, you know, for those of you who know, since uh, for the last 13 years, her father, who was estranged from their family for a really long time and when she was becoming a star was not involved. Her mom um, kind of ran the show and uh, was Britney's so-called like, you know, sidekick manager for all those years. But when she had her, you know, mental breakdown, very public mental breakdown, her dad gained that conservatorship. Now, the things that I want to ask are when is female autonomy uh, more important uh, female autonomy and prevention of exploitation of women's bodies and their anything that has to do with them, you know, what they earn, what they um, produce, if they're creators, how is that more important than mental health? Because now that her dad for a long time now, I think since 2019, he's stepped down his conservatorship, still uh, maintained her money, her $60 million fortune. Um, but not, you know, there was somebody legally appointed to act as the conservator. Um, he, he was kind of making sure she was taking medication. He was making sure that she was okay. He was kind of like her, um, he had mental, mental health guardianship as well. And that's really, really important for some people who are mentally ill and independent and may come off of their medications or may get out of therapy and, you know, bad things can happen. And we all saw that publicly happen to Brittany um, and kids were involved. So that was even more tragic, right? So is the risk of her mental health declining more important than her autonomy and financial independence? And I think that that's important to weigh out. Obviously, the most important person to weigh this out is Brittany and her immediate circle, which it looks like now is going to be her boyfriend, maybe her sister and mom. Um, but for us, I, you know, when I'm looking at this case first, I was looking at it as, oh, it's so frivolous. And why is America worrying about this instead of like bigger deals, like the influx of refugees that we have to take care of and the wars we have to continue stopping and Guantanamo Bay that we have to close and, you know, all of these uh, things that we have to do. And it's Friday. So hashtag I am Afia, releasing Afia Siddiqui. Um, look that up on our posts today. Um, so, but then I started looking at, you know, it's been 13 years that this woman has gotten an allowance every week, even though she earns millions of dollars a month, basically. And her dad legally is entitled. So our justice system get, allowed him to get $18,000 a month plus percentages of all of her tours. So when a tour is making $130 million and you're getting even 2% or 3% of that, a cool load of money considering all you have to do is sit at home and reportedly, you know, staff had said that he was um, drinking, belligerent, screaming. And the reason why he had to step down in 2019 as conservator was because there was a fight with their 13-year-old son. Um, and although no charges were pressed, it's like grandpa beating up the grandkid. Mm, it's not good optics, right? So then I started, you know, as a, as a medical doctor, I'm worried about her mental health, but 
I think I'm a woman and a mom first. And to me, it's always going to be important that my daughter as an adult gets to decide what she does with her body. And as long as she is decisional, which means she is capable of making decisions, that means that she's able to understand what the consequences are of bad decisions and the consequences are of good decisions, so positive and negative consequences. If she's able to do that, then I don't get to say what she does. And this is breaking a huge cycle, right? Because we were not raised like that as, um, uh, Americans, uh, second generation Americans in this country, we did not get choices. Um, so I think it's more important for us to provide choices to our children and honor them, obviously make sure that they're physically safe, that they're mentally healthy, emotionally well, to be there for them, but not to, you know, talk out of two sides of our mouth. The exploitation of any people, men, women, or children is absolutely vile and awful. And, you know, I think we just stay tuned and see how this plays out. But I don't think at the end of the day, if something, God forbid, happens to her health, that that's reflective of how we should carry ourselves forward with our children, like we should clamp down on them more. No, I think this is just a very extreme situation that we have a lot to learn from. Um, and no, I'm not a fan of Britney Spears. I never have been. But in this case, I think the whole free Britney thing, I, I am behind it. So. That's our soapbox for today. I mean, free Britney, right? Like that that was like trending or whatever. And to be honest with you, I wasn't a big fan of her even back in the day. So I really haven't been following it. But, you know, I have personal experience where this type of stuff is concerned with mental illness. And I feel like, you know, as long as the person who has conservatorship or guardianship doesn't take advantage of somebody who is mentally ill, sometimes it's the only choice. So in this circumstance, it seems like it might run in the family, perhaps. So like, I just hope and pray everything <laughs> works out for her. But we're going to put Brittany aside for right now. <clears throat> and I am really excited to be kicking off our disability awareness series with one of our fellow boss moms, Dilshad Ali. She has a degree in journalism from the University of Maryland and has covered and coordinated coverage of Islam and Muslims at home and abroad after 9-11 for a variety of media outlets. She has freelance for the New York Times, Newsweek, and The Atlantic, just to name a few. She is currently the blog editor for Couture Modest Clothing Line at Hot Hijab, which is what she's going to be wearing today, and it's so beautiful. And her, But her most important role, as it is for the rest of us here, here on this panel today is being a mom. And and she is a mother of three, and she fights hard for them every single day. I mean, sometimes we all are fighting with them. Let's just be real, but we have to. But her eldest son has autism and is nonverbal, but he is not non-communicative. And we're going to talk about that with Dilshad. She has an expertise in her family experience, as well as in connecting with moms of kids with disabilities. She also is serving her second term of the Virginia Autism Advocacy Board, but she also sits on the board of Mosin, a Muslim nonprofit dedicated to creating greater inclusivity for Muslims with disabilities within the broader community. We're anxious to hear more about this and what she's saying and what she's wearing. So welcome, Dilshad. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum salam. I feel like I'm on the red carpet. What is she wearing? Ooh, <laughs> where, who are you wearing now. today? Click, 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 click. I'll be paparazzi. But yeah, you're on video, so technically we're video paparazzi. As-salamu alaykum, Dilshad. Thanks so much for coming on. How are you? Excellent, excellent. How are you, Zeba? I'm like, um, I'm doing well, doing well, lady. So Dilshad, welcome. We usually kick off by having our guests tell us a little bit about their mom's story, which is usually whatever you're comfortable sharing about your sure. journey to motherhood, your kids, and your momming philosophy. Okay. I also am very intrigued by what we already talked about because I have thoughts. <laughs> yeah? Good. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Before I do my momming philosophy to what Zeba said about, you know, caring for yourself, so that you can care for others. Uh, this is like something that is so prevalent in disability world, um, especially if you're in a caregiver position. Um, if you are not taking care of yourself, if you're not, and, and we're talking not just about getting, you know, your annual physicals and get your mammogram, we're talking about exercise, eating properly, like making an active effort to have a long 
life in which you're mobile and you're healthy and you're not crippled by back pain or something, it's very important because especially if in your position of caregiving, especially or supporting someone in your life who needs you for the long haul, then you better be healthy. You better damn well be healthy, right? So this has been something that I've been telling myself because I hate to exercise. <laughs> I like my desi food, but you know, one can't live on biryani alone. So <laughs> says who? As long I know, as you exercise, know, but... you can have biryani. <laughs> I do. I do. So... <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I, I've seen, you know, the model of what happens in my own family as women get older. And if they're, you know, they're not prioritizing exercising, they're not prioritizing movement in general, you know, you become very sedentary and that is not going to work for me and my children. So Zeba, your advice is spot on and everyone should take it. And then later on, perhaps if we can come back to the Brittany thing, because guardianship and conservatorship is something that we're very familiar with in our home. And I have a lot of thoughts on it and and just a few things to share on that so maybe we can touch upon that later so yeah absolutely. Um, we'll circle back to that mommying philosophy i i have three children alhamdulillah uh, my eldest is 21 then i have an 18 year old who's now a freshman in university and my youngest just turned 14 and they're awesome children mashallah mashallah we all think ours are the best but mine are really <laughs> they're great kids mashallah um you know, when I had them, the only philosophy I had was that I wanted to, I wanted, I chose to stay home. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there, you know, for all their different things and be the, be that person as much as I could be, unless we were in a position where I had to work. And alhamdulillah, I was able to stay home. And I wanted to be able to raise them to be, um, to, to love their faith, to, I want them to walk on Sirat al-Mustakhin. And I want them to in, uh, also enjoy their life and enjoy where we live. You know, now, I didn't want us to grow up in a little bubble where all we do are like the Desi South Asian things that we do. And they're never, you know, around other people, other cultures, other things, learning about other vast amounts of communities that are out there. So I guess that's really all I ever thought about. What I didn't prepare for, nobody ever prepares for is, you know, um, something that really changes the scheme of what a traditional parenting route is. You know, I wasn't, I, I didn't prepare for autism. I sure did not. Um, I had no knowledge of it um, other than whatever little exposure I had with the special ed kids in school. And if I think we're all around the same age, so you can remember that back in school at that point, you know, special ed kids were put in a different classroom. They were very much uh, apart from mainstream students and the two would never meet. And there was like this weird stigma about special ed kids. And, and unfortunately, sometimes they got picked on or if if it was good, then they got ignored. Like that was the best. Right. Unfortunately, that's what it was back then, you know, or if you you know did something, you know, w- with uh, the special ed classroom in your school, it was like a charity case. They weren't, you know, it it just was a different time, a different era. And that's that's what I came up with. Um, and so getting that, my son's diagnosis, I'm trying not to say his name cause I don't want to say his name, but getting his diagnosis was, uh, you know, a real, not like a shocker. Yeah. It was kind of a shocker, but it was really kind of like a coming to terms with things that we never expected were going to happen. And what are we, how are we going to manage it? And what kind of parents do we want to be now? Right. Because at the time this was early two thousands, uh, there wasn't a lot of information out there on the internet. There wasn't a lot of support groups out there. There wasn't that many organizations out there doing this work. And um, the narrative was very different back then. You know, it was a very woe is me. Uh, the, what is this difficult thing that has happened? You know, this has changed the, tra- the trajectory of your life. Very sorrowful, very grieving and so on and so forth. And um you add the layer of the South Asian Muslim background to it. And there was a lot of, hi, hi, can't talk about this. Right. And the relatives shouldn't be told and we must keep this quiet. Right. A lot of that. And um, 
even when we, you know, started pursuing uh, therapy and education for him and, you know, to get him into the school system and, you know, having an official diagnosis on hand, which is what I did. I pursued that and I got him an official diagnosis when he turned three. Before that, he was in early intervention. And by that point, I had had our second uh, child. So she wasn't like a month old when his official diagnosis came and And that was a real difficult thing for the elders in my family to swallow because they were like, um, it's going to follow him, that diagnosis for the rest of his life. At some point, he's going to outgrow this. And even to the point of he's going to get married someday and this is going to be they're going to ask about like what he had this diagnosis. And I was like, are you to me? I was like, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about the now. And I'm thinking about what he needs now. And I don't need to be quiet about this. So. You know, I think my parenting philosophy was to do whatever I needed to do for him and the rest of my children, of course. And also it was to be open about what our situation was and what the kind of life we were living as time passed, because I really felt strongly that this whole mentality of staying quiet and like stigmatizing these kind of, you know, this you know, these different diagnoses and this, these different kind of ways we live, it wasn't helping anyone. It was only hurting. Right. And, um, and I knew that there were more people out there. There's no way that we were the only Muslim South Asian family who had an autistic child. I mean, come on, look at the numbers. There's, there's got to be. And, and if, if I can feel open and if I can share and be honest in a respectful way without violating my child's privacy about what it was to, you know, live our life, then, you know, I was hoping that it would be helpful to other people to feel open about how they live their life as well, or to feel like they can ask questions or seek answers or seek support or that it's okay to seek support. And you don't have to like feel, you know, that it's just you against the world or that no one understands what I'm going through or that I have to be quiet about this, so on and so forth. So that kind of became my parenting philosophy. Um, I certainly had stumbled along the way. Who hasn't? You know, I think I look back at things that I have written or way of, or different ways I advocated 10 years ago and feel a little cringeworthy about it. Um, you learn as you go. You learn as you go. You learn about the importance of centering the voices of those with who are actually living with that life. You also struggle, you know, I've struggled along the way uh, about the fact that, you know, my child is quite severely affected by his autism and he has a lot of challenges. And this whole idea of, you know, you pass the mic and you speak for yourself and, you know, uh, autistic, you know, autistic self-advocates should be the ones who are speaking. And yes, they should. But sometimes I felt like, you know, where was his voice in that whole situation? If and if I can be a ghostwriter for him, if I can not speak for him, but help elevate, you know, in any way possible, the things that I, as a collective family unit, we think need elevating, then I was going to do that. So, you know, it's been a journey. Um, It's been interesting. Uh, My other kids keep me on my toes. I've certainly dealt with a lot of like, what's up with these double standards, mom? And, you know, and, and me want to be like, it's autism, guys. Come on, don't don't give me that stuff. But then realizing they're your little kids, you know, I mean, they all need to, you know, be listened to. They all need to they need they feel what they feel. You have to make space for that as well. That that was a hard lesson I had to learn. Um, definitely. My husband was better at that than I was over the years. I got to give him some props. You know, he over the years was like, we have three children. We don't just have one. We have three. And they feel left out sometimes and or they do feel like he gets away with all these things and they have to do these things and you have to talk them through that. So, yeah, it's a little bit of my philosophy in a nutshell. For the benefit of that audience, when you had earlier talked about Surat al-Mustaqim, that means it's the straight path that Muslims are many, many times requesting from God in their ritual prayers to remain on the straight path um, towards him. Um, I think it's really great that you broke that cultural norm, which is sweep it under the rug, pretend it doesn't exist. We love pretending problems don't exist, especially in, I mean, arguably not just in subcontinental Muslims, in all 
uh, Muslim places all over the world, all over the Muslim world, we're not good at talking about the elephant in the room. We could see that right. there were members of our community who were not able to do the things that we were able to do, but we were never allowed to ask about it. And our moms certainly weren't asking about it because, oh, no, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. Because if you if you speak it, it will happen to you. Yeah, if you name yeah. it, right? Yeah, if you yeah. give it a name, it will be true and it will come back to you. Now, yep. I, I, I can't say that that's 100% false, but I'm pretty sure it's 99% false. Uh, disabilities are not contagious. And um, you mentioned that your son was diagnosed at three years old, which is typically when um, we can do that we can diagnose autism. It's uh, sometimes earlier, but can yeah. you tell us, you know, what happened before the diagnosis when you knew that something was not sure. right and yeah. what that process looked like? So again, you have to understand that this was all coming to fruition in the early 2000s. So he's born in 2000, right? It's 2021 and he's 21. He's born in 2000. So the awareness and the conversations around this are much more fewer, much less. It's I'm a little surprised at myself that I knew the word autism. Like I, I must've read it somewhere. I knew some of the characteristic or the, um, the markers, you know, that people looked for back then, which was uh preservative behavior or some hand flapping perhaps, or, um, you know, uh, some sort of OCD stuff, you know, lining your cars up, you know, not pointing, not making eye contact. I knew these things. And I think about this, like, where did I know that from? How did I know those things? Where had I read about this, that I knew those things? Because, you know, so my son, he, he was the, the the pregnancy was a difficult one that I had and he was born uh, premature and um, but not so much that he couldn't come home with me from the hospital. It was about a month premature. He came home and uh, his first year went pretty fine. However, he did miss his markers from the get go. So like, you know, those developmental milestones that pediatricians talk to you about, you know, at six months, this at nine months that he was always behind, always and when he was about one and not saying any, like he had, wasn't calling me by name yet. And yeah, was he saying like da da or baba, you know, sure. But you know what? As much as we've been like, oh, he's saying daddy. He's just babbling. Okay. He's just babbling. And, and, we, and we assign meaning to it. And then that's how they learn. That's part of the process of children learning to, you know, that their sounds mean something and then they form words and so on and so forth. Um Never said mama, never to this. I mean, can I ask him to repeat it? Yeah. Does he say it with meaning or call me? No. Um, so it never happened. He never pointed. He never pointed, you know, and and all his even physical milestones were late. So I was concerned. Um, I bought into the theory around me that boys talk late. Um, this was fed to me and I and I willingly ate it. You know, so I'm not going to blame, you know, the elders and people around me who are like, you know, I, I was going to launch into Urdu, but we'll keep it to English. <laughs> who said that boys talk late, right? They talk, you know, anyways, you know, so-and-so son, you know, when he was two, he started talking in full sentences and so on and so forth. And I think we all, we all wanted to buy it. We all wanted to eat it. So like, you know, the daddies and the nannies, the grandmas and grandpas in my family, they wanted to eat it. I wanted to eat it. We all wanted to. So we did. Let me backtrack. We're living in New York. Um, my husband's doing his residency. I had my son, uh, you know, within a year and a couple months of being married. Classic, right? I'm now comparing my son or looking around saying, yeah, there's yeah, something's, something's off. You know, he's really not doing this. That her, She's doing that. And she's doing that. And he's doing that. And my kid's not, Right. And my husband is very busy with his residency um, and unavailable most of the time. So I'm doing a sort of pseudo single parenting at this point. And um, I, I bring it up. I'm like, there's something off. There's something off. We need to, you know, talk to the pediatrician. We need to do something. I think he needs some therapy. And so we agree but we agree to keep it on the down low. So around two, we mutually decided like, okay, yeah, he still isn't doing a bunch of stuff. So upon her recommendation, we put him in early intervention in the, in New York city and uh, early intervention meant we had a couple different therapies that, you know, he had an evaluation done 
Um, and then he had a uh, speech therapy that used to come to our apartment. He had a therapist who came who worked on play therapy, which is literally teaching how to play with toys appropriately instead of just stacking blocks, but actually building things and mimicking different structures. And instead of just lining cars up, let's vroom, 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 and go around the track, right? Like actually play therapy. And this all kind of blew my mind. Like, what is this, right? So year two to three goes like that. I told my husband, I said, okay, well, we need to like fess up to everyone now. We need to bring everyone in on the fold. And I said, we need to go through, you know, he needs to be officially diagnosed because we all know now that, you know, I'm pretty sure it's autism. And my husband's like, he kind of didn't say much about it. I think he didn't want to believe it. Honestly, we were all stumbling through the dark back then. I want to say this to the autism world out there. I'm not, I don't mean to say that it's dark. Like it was such a, you know, terrible, awful, like, you know, autism sucks. I don't mean it like that. But if you can just put yourself in my shoes, you know, back in 2003, not knowing anything, newly married, arranged marriage, all that stuff. Right. And it was it was scary. It was hard. And what what's going on with my kid? Although it's been 20 years since the events of 9-11, many of us can still remember it like it was yesterday. America, and the world even, has never been the same. For Marfelion Media, the King of the World podcast series explores the impact of that day for the American Muslim community through the journey its host, Shah Jahan Khan, who was a high school senior at that time. This seven-part series delves into what it was like to be a Muslim living in America for the past 20 years in a unique and accessible way, covering topics like identity, belonging, mental health and addiction alongside the related events of the the last 20 years, including the war on terror, spying, discrimination, media representation, and resilience. King of the World, an American Muslim story, told by American Muslims. Subscribe now to King of the World wherever you get your podcasts. It's difficult not because you're regretting anything or you think it's a negative thing. It's difficult because it was the unknown. And when moms are going through this limbo period of the unknown, when they're and this goes with everything, like Osma with her daughter, when she had her issues, my, with my son, when I had my issues, when you're going through this limbo, when you have an ill child or in your case, um, that's not quote unquote, what the people you were expecting, right. The loss of what you thought you were going to have during this limbo period while you're figuring it out. You don't regret the child you have. You never do, but you do on some level start thinking like, okay, all those expectations, all those things that I had for this baby, I'm going to have to back up. And now I'm going to have to set up new, new expectations and new things. And, and by the way, that's also a gift. So, you know, I, I would like to know, because I follow your journey on Facebook and I love seeing the interaction between all of you guys. It's one of my things that I, I truly enjoy because you never do, you're, you're very real. You never do try to make it seem like it's, you know, like sugar coated, but there are these moments of like pure joy that you can kind of see that kind of peeks out what is a day for you really truly like for for somebody that has a nonverbal non-communicative because we're talking about a a spectrum right right and your son is probably more on the the, on the left side of the spectrum I'm still trying to learn that where he is not going to be able to live on his own yeah correct so because of that you know your day-to-day life as a caretaker is not going to end when he turned 18 or 21 or or moving on. So why don't you take us through like a typical day um, in taking care of your 21 year old? So, and to backtrack a little bit off that, I mean, I think it's important to say in, you know, earlier on, I talked about how a lot of times in the beginning when we, when uh, a parent will receive this diagnosis, it can be this really difficult time for them. And sometimes in the autism community, there's a lot of resentment of that because, you know, it doesn't have to be, it's not the end of your life kind of a diagnosis kind of a thing. It can be so many things, right? And and there are people on the spectrum who, you know, self-advocates and, and who go on and do, you know, A to Z, so many different things with their life. And they are really proud of themselves as they are who they are. You know, they don't regret their autism. They don't, you know, wish it away. That being said, there's also those on the spectrum who are profoundly affected. 
and who have profound issues and support needs. And one can't say for sure, because um, I fully believe that um, the intelligence and cognition is there. I really do um, in everyone and all of them. And um, I can't tap into in a way that I can understand what he's thinking all the time or what he might feel about himself as he is who he is. But I, I really believe just in how he lives his life that he's cool with it. You know, he he's cool with it. And he definitely finds his joy in the day to day. And um, so it's complicated. It's really, really complicated. So I I did grieve in the beginning. I'm going to be honest. I still grieve now sometimes. Like when he turned 18 and his peers were graduating and we were going through guardianship and conservatorship. We can we can touch upon that later. That's what we that was what our reality was. While my friends who also had 18 year olds were all like, yay, graduation and going off to college. And I grieved. Um I didn't grieve because I think my son is less than or I um, regret or feel, you know, like any of that. Like, I love him as he is who he is. But, yeah, it's hard because I have a pretty decent idea of the future he's heading into. Now, God can make anything happen at any time. Things can change. And I'm, I'm not the knower of it. But practically speaking, I have a pretty decent idea. And so it's hard. Um, to your question, what is a day like? Um so it's funny you ask that because a day with him is just as normal as, as a cup of chai to me. You know, it's like anything, it's nothing. But I always tell myself, I guess if someone walked into our life and took over my role for a day, they'd be like, whoa, you know, but so he needs a lot of support throughout his day. Um, it, within that, he has his independence to, you know, choose what he wants to do, you know, go where he wants to go in our house, you know, um, I can't, you know, just he's not the kind of guy where he can just go out with his friends, you know, does he even have friends? That's another question, right? Um, thank God for his brother and sister. He does have some friends, but like, thank God for his brother and sister. Like they, they're just a real, they're a real tight unit. Um, and we have just changed our life around that. I don't know a life where like on a Friday night, I'm like, yeah, let's go to Cold Stone and get ice cream. No, it's let's go to Cold Stone. But I think um, I think D, you know, doesn't like to go out at night because he has some sort of nighttime anxiety issue. So which one of us is going to stay home and the others will take the kids out or your sister invited us for dinner he seems to be having an off day. So maybe you all should go, but I'll stay home. Like that's just, that's just how we roll all the time, all the time. So there's no, like, I shouldn't say no, but there's, there's less spontaneity to how we live, you know, planned knowing in advance, having an exit strategy, um, definitely deciding what we want, you know, where, what we want to do and how we want to do it, where we want to, where he should be involved. There's a lot of push pull in our family between pushing him to be involved in certain activities or certain family things and how much of that is beneficial to him and how much of that is for our benefit. Right. And sometimes, yeah, it is for our benefit. And like, you know, all of us have kids who don't want to go to things. Sometimes you're like, no, you're coming. (laughs) We're going to go into the family. So there's a little bit of that. And there's a little bit of, you know, he's not going to get anything out of this and we're going to be stressed. And so it's better that we divide and conquer tonight. So there's, yeah, that's how it is. And I think on some level we can all appreciate like the level of flexibility that 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 requires, but also realize that there is a routine that is necessary for his environment and his success. Um, But I do want to take it back to, you know, you're talking about he is an adult, uh, but needs guardianship. So do you want to inform our audience about that? Yeah, I actually did a whole video on it for our local autism society. I think they have it up on their website now. It's the autism society of central Virginia, but um, so everyone's kind of heard a bit about autism. I mean, sorry about guardianship and conservatorship through the Britney Spears case, right? Guardianship is when you apply for legal um, guardianship of your loved one. And so then you have in, in legal terms, and I really hate the legal terminology, but it is what it is. It's literally taking away the person's rights, you know, and, and then you have, you exercise the rights on their behalf, you know, and conservatorship is being in charge of their finances. And so, um, you know, and I think the thing that I really wanted to say when you were doing the soapbox moment was that 
guardianship and conservatorship is not an all or nothing game. There are different levels of guardianship and conservatorship. So sometimes, you know, you you get to the age of 18 with your loved one, with your with your son, let's just say your son, and he's capable of driving, let's say. He's capable of voting. He's capable of a certain things, but he he's not capable of understanding his housing needs and his um, you know, other things in his life. So you can, you can mold guardianship to allow or to make sure he maintains his rights to certain things while you help him support him for other things, right? Maybe, maybe medical visits and anything to do with medical and doctor and and health and this and that is something that it is not, he's not fully capable of making um, good decisions for himself or understanding that. So you have guardianship in those areas. Kind of like sometimes parents do a power, a medical power of attorney with their kid when they turn 18, so they can still be involved with medical decision making, even though that, you know, your son or your child is now legally an adult and can kick the, your, the parent out of the room, right? Something like that. And even conservatorship can be done in various ways. So like, I think that's, a, that's something that people seem to not understand when they approach it, that they think it's an all or nothing approach, right? Now we had to do an all or nothing approach. We really did because his needs are really... Um, profound. Within the all or nothing approach, approach, I did make sure to maintain that he could have his right to vote because we, um, you know, he understands a lot of stuff and we discuss a lot of things in our house, including politics. And so, you know, we do a lot of choice boards and we do a lot of pecs and, you know, he, you know, will sit and pay, you know, you think he's not paying attention when we're watching presidential debates, but he's really absorbing a lot. And so he and his sister have a really good partnership where she will, you know, put out the choices for the candidates. She'll talk him through and then she'll be like, all right, which one do you want to vote for? You know, and then we'll do it like like three times just to make sure we're picking the same person each time. And he has some definite opinions. And in the last um, presidential election, the primary, he his vote was different than his father and and my vote, you know, you know, so like I made sure to maintain that right. Um so there's, yeah, there's different levels that you can do. Like I said, we have total guardianship and conservatorship, and you can amend those things down the line. You know, he could turn 30 and have learned certain things and acquired certain skills. And we feel like, okay, we don't need to be in control of these things anymore. He can be in control of those things themselves, but it's, it's still a real tricky and it, it's, it's a system that can get abused for sure. And has been many, many times. But it's also a system that is in, that is the in place and there for a reason. I just I just struggle with the legal terminology of it because I remember writing a post I think on Facebook or something about how when we finally went to court and was approved guardianship and and it was like and it is considered taking away their rights and I was like but I'm not taking away his rights his, he he has rights upon us you know and. And he will always have those, you know, and, and my job is to, main sh- is to make sure that we can, you know, facilitate his choice and his opinions on things as best as we can, you know, and pray to Allah that we're just we're trying our best and that to forgive us for the mistakes we make along the way, you know. You're doing the best that you can, and it's so. And thank you for clarifying all of this. I mean, I have a yeah. son who's 18, yeah, and it's really annoying how I can't even get the test results. And you know, we're also in the process of, you know, getting test results. And I'm like, what the heck? I thought maybe I can call, and no. they're like, nope, you can't call. You can't do it anymore. And then stupid, it's stupid. Guess what? It was in his voicemail, and these kids don't check their voicemail. So I've been worrying unnecessarily. For three days, he got a voicemail and he's like, oh yeah, they did call three days ago. Everything's fine. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? So you have, you have that form signed, you know, with the, I, now with I have to go, we do yeah. for his pediatrician, but yeah. now for all the specialists, yeah. we have to go and get those forms signed yeah. because guess what? He doesn't want to make the appointments. He doesn't <laughs> want to get the test results. He, <laughs> he wants you to me do it. To do it. He? Yeah. He's like, I don't want to, I have zero interest in all of that, but I'm like, guess what? But of course he feels like a little bit of a big man now that right. He, he can go without his mom. But, you know, I, I definitely love hearing the inside of this because you don't realize how much goes into your everyday. And what warms my heart is the relationship between the siblings, uh, because the reality too. of the, the situation is, you know, 
God forbid, once you're passed, well, it's going to go down to them on some level. And so having that relationship um, built up from the ground up is is definitely needed um, yeah. in our community. But I know you do a lot of good work in the community in talking about the stigma about children with disabilities or special needs, especially in our community. How have you been able to navigate that? Because, you know, it is in our generation, I feel like that we're more able to talk about it, be open about it. And we're not ashamed about, about these things. We're like, this is what it is. This is how I'm going to do it. I love him or her. This is how I'm going to embrace it. And I don't really give to, you know, what's about what you think about it. So what, how have you dealt with some of those people that we find in our mosques and our masjids and things like that? Um, that say those things that are not necessarily the most productive. Right. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I am, I'm not that involved with our mosque community. I'm not, I just never found a place for um, my son in that community. Um, We certainly, you know, which speaks volumes by the way. Yeah. We certainly, you know, go to eat prayers and Jummah prayers and, and different, you know, events and stuff. I, I, I love my masjid, but at the same time I'm frustrated there's a couple in town and I'm on some level frustrated with all of them because there's never been that much of a outreach, you know, and I'm not just talking towards us. There's other families in town, you know, who have children on the spectrum and let's also include elderly in there. Like how accommodating are your massages towards, you know, uh, helping the, you know, elderly with, with where they can go inside the masjid or can they hear or closed captioning. Now the one that's closest to where I live physically, it's, it's one of the newer masjids and we were, you know, fundraising and this and that we were always involved in that. Definitely. They have made some steps, you know, they, they, they were made sure to, to have a room on the main floor. You know, they have the kind of masjid where it's like they have the section uh, for men. And then they have um, one up above, uh, which is very nice and open and huge for ladies. So it's not like some cramped, gross place. It's, it's pretty nice. And, uh, but they also made, you know, uh, a, a, a section on the main floor for women who, you know, if you're elderly or if you're disabled, you can't climb the stairs or whatever, you know, so you can just be on the main floor. You can come in through the main entrance. You don't have to go in through a side entrance and all those different things. Right? So they've done some things and definitely they've made some accommodations in their bathrooms, you know, in their wudu areas to me, more accommodating. So I appreciate that. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm talking about the kind of programming or the kind of khutbas or the kind of um, accommodations that might be made on Friday night halakas for boys or something, you know, I don't really see it. And I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in two minds about it. Like part of me feels like I know that I haven't advocated strongly enough for it within my community, but I also know that there, I only have the capacity to do so much. Um, And that's a lot of ground level work to uh, to get things like that happening in your masjid right where you are. And, uh, you know, when I look back over the last 10 years, I kind of wish that I put more energy into that and maybe some of the other places where I did my advocacy work, because that would have been beneficial, not just to my eldest, but to my other kids, because, because I'm not that involved and because I don't take him, that means my other two don't go also that much because I mean, let's face it. I mean, I think fathers also, you know, they do a lot of dads do take the step to take their kids and take them with them. And sure. But a lot of this stuff falls upon the moms as well. And if you're not going to the masjid, you're the masjid or the mosque, your kids aren't going either. The way I've navigated that space is to just be, as time has passed to just be as open as I can about what my needs are and why I can't show up sometimes. So like, I find it real frustrating and funny at the same time, every Ramadan and at the prayers, like I'll, if I'm lucky, I can go once, twice, thrice, maybe to the If I have, you know, like my husband and I trade off, or if I had a caregiver who couldn't come to hang out, you know, at my house with my kids so that I can go so on and so forth. And every time I go like the friends who I've had for years, Oh, Dilshad, where have you been? Like, we've been, it's good to see you. I'm like, and I'm like, um, you know where I've been. I've been home with D because I can't come to the massage because he can't come here. So <laughs> I'm just going to say it. <laughs> you know where I've been, you know, or, you know, straight up, like, you know, any of the multiple different social events, especially pre-COVID, you know, I'd be like, okay, I'll get back to you. 
Um, I have to see if I can get a caregiver or no, bring him. Then I'll be like, okay, how many families are going to be there that night? You know, I'm, and there, nobody's being mean or snarky. I'm just, I've just decided I'm going to be open and honest about what my needs are. And everyone where I live knows that I am the first to come to something on time and I'm the first to leave because I have a caregiver at home who needs to be let go and I need to get home for that. I think that's a good rundown of the barriers um, to uh, people with autism in our masjid. I know that I myself have never responded well to um, children with autism in our masjid because it I realize that there's not a space for them. And Alhamdulillah, it seems like we're starting to get better on that. Yeah. So one of them is Mosin, yep. um, which you are on the board of. Can you talk to us a little bit about what does the acronym mean and what is the work uh, that they do and how you got involved? So Mosin, the acronym stands for uh, Muslims Understanding and Helping Special Needs Education, M-U-H-S-E-N. Yeah. <laughs> Special education needs, that's it. The executive director, Juhi Tahir, she and I knew each other primus and, you know, from just being in same, you know, the Muslim autism circles were pretty small back then. I guess they kind of still are, but like it was pretty small. And she and I were in them and uh, we are, our children uh, who are on the spectrum are the same age. She has a daughter, I have a son. So we're, a lot of the, the things that we've gone through have been on the same path. Um, and you know, I talk about it sometimes I, I think I, um, could have put my advocacy work or I could have put it into something else. I really admire that. That's what she did. She, she literally founded this, um, organization, uh, with the help of Sheikh Omar Suleiman and it has grown so beautifully and exponentially. And that's where I think there's been a real, um, kind of a turning point of not just awareness, but action. So like we actually had like, so Muslim started with masjid certification programs, gold, silver, and platinum levels, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, you could pursue certification for your masjid and, and there's just a, there's a whole like list of things that you have to do to receive, to be Muslim certified, you know, from the physical accommodations in your masjid to the kind of programming you offer to the kind of support systems you have in place there's a whole list of those and you pursue those and then it's not just ticking them off your list and then you're certified you know the muslim comes back and makes sure you're maintaining it right so that's you know one on wonders what's the point of getting certified well it kind of holds you accountable you know it keeps you it holds you accountable to the things you should be doing and it kind of and it shows in the community that this is a welcoming space and, you know, Chicago is where Mosin um, is uh, um, located. You know, we have branches and, and, and the work is done nationally and now internationally, but that's where it stems from. And so it's so cool to see some of the stuff happening in the Chicago community. And so, you know, they started with a certification program. They moved on to uh, put together a model for a, a more inclusive Sunday school with curriculum for, you know, different, you know, to accommodate different disabilities and um, so they have a weekend school program that is being modeled in different Sunday schools around the country. There's a really great um, group happening around the Dallas area. It's growing in the D.C. area and other pockets of the U.S. And obviously programming, um, you know, different uh, throughout COVID. It was great because, um, you know, the support groups and, you know, uh, programming about like IEP problems. IEP stands for Individualized Education Plan which uh, students with different disabilities have um, in the school system if, you know, they can't follow a regular curriculum. So IEP planning, uh, the transition when you turn 18, how does that work? What are the things you have to do when your loved one turns 18? Um, you know, how do you uh, navigate, you know, what are, what speech and OT and PT, what are these different therapies and how do you navigate that? You know, support groups for different um, levels, you know, siblings, parents, those with different disabilities supporting each other, you know, um, all those things are being done online. So it's, it's, and it's been a really great uh, space to see this grow. And, you know, from just being the comfortability of being able to talk about things openly and to um, bring these, this type of programming and this type of work to our, not just our masajid, but different, you know, Muslim communities and community centers and things like that. And to partner with different organizations and grow that work. And it's been really, really nice to see that happen. And, and you know, uh, and 
it's, it's just not that stigmatized anymore. I think that's for me has been one of the best parts about it. It's just not that stigmatized anymore, you know? Um, and that's where, and it's fine. It's sometimes funny because in, in autism world, you know, every April when autism awareness month comes along, there's a lot of push against why are we still talking about autism awareness? I mean, we're way past awareness and let's talk about our actionable items and talking about, let's talk about acceptance and those things. Whereas I would say in Muslim and in various subcultures, um, South Asian, Middle Eastern, various subcultures, um, we're still coming through awareness still. And so it's been, it's been good to see how exponentially that has grown and to be a part of that. Alhamdulillah. I just, you know, Muslim has just started their first adult day support program and oh, we are talking, yeah, and we're talking, you know, and we've been like talking and, 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 vis- and visiting different, uh, um, more like gr- not group home, but more other communities where, you know, people with disability uh, can live and also be part of day support programs and all, and, you know, that kind of a situation as well. You know, these are long-term plans we think about because, you know, that's what I think about, like, you know, where, where's, where's my boy going to live? What's, you know, mm-hmm. how long are we all going to live together? You know, I, it's hard to say these things, but I, you know, my husband, I really think about, you know, at some point we need to transition him elsewhere because I would rather him transition to a different place or a different type while you're of there. living while I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. And while I can still actively like make sure that, you know, where he is and who he's living with, that he's, you know, protected, it's dignified, he's respected. He, you know, is doing the things that he wants <clears throat> to do. And that that's all in place under my supervision before I go so that his siblings can take over later on. You know, I want to say personally, because we've gotten to know you pretty intimately the last couple of months. And yeah. I mean, while Muslim has jumped on board with Hot Hijab and we we love you, we love your story. We love everything that you're doing. But another way we want to get to know you because, you know, you're always telling the story of your son or your children, but we want to get to know you right ah. now. <laughs> and Uzma is going to set a timer for one minute and okay. I'm going to rapid, rapid fire. fire. Are you ready okay. for this? And I always right. start off with this. What is the book that you're currently reading right now? I'm reading. It's right here. It's called Homeland Elegies. Oh, I just read that amazing book. Um, what is the first concert you attended? Oh, my God. Richard Marks. <laughs> In like seventh grade, sixth grade. You're, I wasn't so, on the radio. you're supposed to lie on that one. No, I'm not going to lie. I Don't lie. Tell the, the truth. Tell the truth. I was you, the you're... caller, okay? <laughs> oh, and she won. You're a journalist. What is your favorite word? Um, I don't have a favorite word. Oh, I like what all is, the words. I love all the words. That is a favorite word. A what is your most answer. used emoji? And it can be the poop emoji, which has been mine for the last. No, it's you know, the, it's week. the one that it's one that dates you as being old. It's the laughing while crying emoji. Oh, that one, yeah, yeah. The, or the side one. Okay, yeah. if yeah. you could change your name to anything in the world, what would it be? I like my daughter's name. Well, I'm not going to say her name either, but I like her yes. name. That's why I picked you it for love her. That? I love that. <laughs> okay. Awesome. But we, we, we love everything that you're doing and thank you Dilshad for kicking off this very informative, um, must needed <laughs> series for our community. Thank you. We learned a lot today. And, um, again, considering how much work you do outside of the home, like, you know, you're running two full-time jobs at home. So we salute you and the invisible load of motherhood that you're carrying. And, you know, if people have any questions or want to contact you, um, are you available? And if so, where should they contact you? Um, I put my social media handles uh, in the information I gave you. So I guess you're going to share that out. Yeah, And yeah, you can. The majority of people don't read. (laughs) <laughs> I am on Twitter at Dilsha D. Ali. It's the same uh, handle for Instagram. I'm not that active on Instagram, but it's there. And I am on Facebook also. You can just Google Dilsha Ali and find me there because, you know, I'm old and that's probably that's the first social media site I started on. So I still <laughs> stay there. <laughs> yeah, all of us. And yeah. then your blog page is at Muslim and Next Door. Yeah, yeah. So I have my own personal blog, which is uh, patheos.com at Muslimon next door. And then at if you just go to the Hot Hijab website, hothijab.com, the blog, just click on that. That's, I got my fingers all over that's that. That's her other baby. 
that she, is <laughs> that's, she that's the one her? that pays the bills. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thanks yeah. so much. And we look forward to talking to you soon more about the blog at Hot Hijab. And thank you so much for helping us out with our Disability Awareness Month. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.